Hi there and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have Galit Ariel with us. She's a techno-futurist and founder at Future Memory. Galit, please introduce yourself and tell the people what you do. So, hi, my name is, as I said, Galit Ariel. I was born and raised in Israel and moved to Europe when I was 20 to study industrial design. Um, from the design of physical spaces, I moved into the design of interactions and experiences. And currently, I'm focused on immersive technology and augmented reality in particular. Uh, I wrote a book and give uh, a lot of talks about the impact of augmented reality on our so social interactions and our culture. Uh, both in physical and digital space. I'm a PhD student at York University, exploring horizons of uh, the self and embodiment within hybrid spaces. Um, and I run an agency called Future Memory Inc., which is um, focused on art tech projects and disciplines um, as counterculture in a good way um, to to allow us to rethink how we design technology and how we use it. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you when prepping for this talk was, what is some? what are some of the topics? Because a lot of people tend to say that they kind of see where the future is going, but what are some of the topics that you would like to have discussed uh, or shine a light on during this podcast as people listen, especially a lot of startups, new tech entrepreneurs, what are some of the topics you'd like to discuss? So um, the first thing, which actually relates to your question, is can we predict the future? <laughs> that, that's a number one um, question. And, and even myself, although you know my official title is techno-futurist, um, there is a difference between predicting the future or knowing the future and, and creating possible futures and actually guiding it towards a future that we actually want. And I think these are two major differences in how companies work and how people act um, in the world. Um, so can we predict the future is, is the number one topic, should we? Um, and the second one is uh, probably the real impact of technology on our, not just on our everyday lives, but on our cultures and behaviors. Um, these are things that are less tangible and thus harder to discuss, but we kind of need to, because I think we all know and we all seen, especially in the past year and a half, how there's a gap between the promise of technology and the delivery of technology in terms of culture and interaction. Um, I think these are the two things that, that all my projects are, are about. And another thing that could be really interesting um, is, you know, the, the dichotomy between, you know, um, the opening up and closing up of, of society, the cancel culture versus the 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 outreach for everything and how do we balance that um because it's it's hard times to create content and to you know interact online without stepping on toes on everybody's toes all the time and kind of like this externalizing and you know what you're about and risking the backlash of it, I think that's important for every brand or product or company. So how do you, how do you make something that makes an impact but doesn't offend everyone? Or can you even, you know, consider both? So the appropriation culture. The reason I think I asked that question is obviously we we talked before this, and um, what I loved kind of in that brainstorm that we were talking about is uh, we covered so many topics in such a short time that um, it was almost necessary to to kind of, you know, really pick a couple of topics that are really relevant. You definitely brought up a ton of them. I'm not sure we're going to cover all of them. Uh, but I think the most relevant ones were definitely the first one that you mentioned, the can we predict the future? 
because um, in the past it's been very often that we cannot predict the future over the long term but over the short term we can I guess my question as an entrepreneur right um, looking at the markets um, how re- which time span is really realistic to predict something based on your experience and you being in the industry um, what time span should I be looking at also when I'm predicting and creating pitch decks and stuff like that? Um, I think it really depends on on the client and the need because you could create very targeted and I want to say very precise. The narrower and closer it is, the more precise and accurate you can be. Obviously, the more you predict over a long term or broader territories or demographics, um, the hardest it is to actually predict accurately how people will behave, or I want to say relatively accurately, because you can never really predict how people will react to something or not. If we all knew the answers, we would all be billionaires. Um, And this is why so much money is, is being invested in behavioral prediction algorithms. Um, But the truth is, it's more influenced by behavioral nudging algorithms. So even the tech companies don't trust us to interact with technology the way they want us to. And they create all these pings and bings and, and alarms and, and thinking processes of efficiency and accuracy that works for them to trigger us to behave in one way. So it's the closer, I want to say, if you want me to predict what will happen this week at large, I can probably give you a prediction that is almost accurate. Um, But again, after 2020, 2021, I think we also noticed that predictions and behaviors are not synced at all. And this is something that, you know, most behavioral scientists and futurists have been struggling with for years, but now it's out in the surface. So I think it's as good as time as of any. And I always speak the truth to say the truth. You can't predict the future, but you can estimate, you know, and you can work towards, you know, shaping it in a certain way. And I think this is also the real danger of companies that are relying so much on on predictions and promises that work 90% of the time. Because normally, you know, rhythm and flow of behaviors and rhythm and flow of consumption or rhythm and flow of, of processes just go on from their momentum. So it's really, really easy to sit and say, oh, my God, um, everybody are using social media, so people are going to use a lot of social media. Right. It's it's very easy once it started to predict it. And I'm doing like air quotes to predict it. It's just to to it's not even prediction. It's just to monitor its progress. But it's very, very hard to predict or anticipate something before it starts or something that is riding high and might end. So and, and this is the hard work of the futurist of the real futurist is, is A, to see systems as patterns, see things that happen and understand their dynamics when it's on the high, when you're surfing on the top of the wave and when it's starting to crash. That's, that's number one difficult, but seeing things before they start or end, this is the real challenge of, of a futurist. And that requires, I think, a much broader understanding than business analytics or you know, pattern recognition, but more into the behavioral and and cultural um, undercurrents that are happening that might diverge um, such um, tendency. So, you know, one one of the words I I hated there there are certain words I, I have allergy to. One is disruption, you know, disruptive innovation. I really I really can't stand it. I understand what it means, but I think the desire to disrupt uh, is disruptive and destructive. I'd much prefer constructive innovation. And the second one 
was the buzzword, I think, of 2019, which was exponential growth, which um, which was, in my mind, ridiculous because nothing in the universe is, is exponential. There is no such thing as exponential growth that doesn't come at cost, um, that doesn't come with exploitation, um, and actually it doesn't even exist. Even the universe is, is not just expanding. It's, it's actually, we think it's, it's contracting at the moment. So these promises of everything will be okay and it will be constant flow and constant growth uh, are things that we're very happy to believe. But uh, the cautionary tales, the, the, the ones that ask you to be proactive are things that a lot of entrepreneurs and, and established companies especially um, they're not really happy to to receive. They really just want to hear the good news and what can we do to be successful with no cost and no effort. And and this is the trick and and the tricky part of working with with clients is to balance their to be positive, of course, because you want them to grow, but to balance their expectation with with caution and unpredictability. Um, there is a built-in a built-in feature of our lives. So ju- just for also the listeners, but also for me to get uh, context, how, what is your job at Future Memory? Like, what does a company come and ask of you? Is it the, you know, this prediction that you think might happen? Um, or is it do they just really want a real prediction that they are betting on? So the, I think there are three types of, of, of projects. Um, also because we are more focused on, on art tech, it's mostly asking us to, to create, you know, there is of course a lot of research behind, behind it, but um, to create future scenario, scenarios or desirable future scenarios. So, and, and it's almost like um, creating futures, alternative futures for them. Um, so a company will come to us and say, like, look, we're and they could be doing well or not doing well, but they want to, to grow and they want to have some sort of a vision on what their future would look like or could not would, but could look like, which I think is, is a major difference. And we do the deep research um, towards like what's happening now in the market. Um, and then, you know, of course, this is one future, like, okay, this can, it's a future they don't need us to, because they can just keep doing what they're doing and it'll be fine. But we have it there. And then we create um, alternate futures, you know. Uh, we always have a disaster future and a weird future Um and the disaster future is, is indeed like helping them prep for, for shifts and, and um, you know, if their product or their service, you know, changes dramatically, you know, because of political or cultural or usage or competitive reasons, how can they work towards making it still valuable and unique and agile and relevant um, and then we have the weird, and, and this is my favorite, the weird, the weird futures of like, of how people actually use it. I always say like the weird always happens in, in some way, you know, when the internet was invented, I think 80% of, of what we were doing with it was not at all what was predicted for, for its usage. I, I don't think many people thought about TikTok, you know. Even even the ones that were talking about communication and knowledge, um, um, porn. You know, I was I, I like to say porn is always is always an angle I look at because most technological advancement actually happened due to porn, thanks to porn, like DVD, online payment, blockchain. You know, they are all accelerated because of porn. Yes, because there's one thing that you know that somebody will try to do your product is get laid you know and and it's again it's not directly but it's not just porn as the industry but but 
you know, trying to attract others through products and services, trying to appeal to others, trying to represent ourselves in attractive way to others um, is, is a, an inherently built in, you know, human desire. Right. So, you know, going to these levels, like how do we adhere with these needs? How can your product also do this or make sure that it doesn't, you know, do that or bias um, towards other things? And this is also part of the weird is, is you know, um, facial recognition, you know, the biases of facial recognition, for example, Um are, are obvious. I think um, there are some horrible examples just from the last week where um, where a Facebook algorithm tagged um, an African American, uh, a black person, um, features as primate because this is what the algorithm learned, and and it's it's pretty heavy, you know. It's 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 pretty bad, you know. And, and I'm like under underplaying it. So this is also part of the, we are like predicting, you know, um, challenges that you might not see because you might be, you know, a white Silicon Valley developer. So, you know, your world, you're building from your experience and you have a perspective on how the products will and will not, or the service will or will not be used. And you need external, you know, banters and you need external, you know, pressure tests because once it goes out, and, and today more than ever, things just disperse and, and you have no control. If in the past products were like, you know, growing organically and slowly, I think most most um, tech companies or, or, or every product, they aim immediately for global, you know, expansion domination. They have to, even if they don't want to, they have to plan for it because everything is is global at the moment, accessible in a push of a button. So these patterns of, of expansion has to be thought of before and, and kind of, I want to say, prototyped and modeled before you start, you put it out in the world. Maybe a bit more of a direct question, but do you feel like your job has become much more relevant, but also has more money available to it since the whole cancel culture became like a real thing where companies would lose a ton of money for it? Um, yes and no. Um, I think it was always relevant and... I think people are just more aware of the importance of it now and people are being called out about it now. Um, but I think that on the other hand, it actually, um, instead of understanding that something is relevant, for example, equality at work and, and making sure you're not, your product isn't biased or offensive. Um, we now know, um, but it also makes a lot of companies really, really scared to do anything, honestly. Um, and it's very understandable, even even myself as an individual. And I'm a very outspoken person. You know, I'm very, I'm very much a straight shooter, and and I, I if it, you know, it might have, it obviously offends people. People will get offended no matter what you say. Um, but this balance of, of deciding what to put out and understanding it will it will have a backlash and, and knowing how to deal with it is, is a very complex thing that companies didn't need to do up until recently, up, up until the Me Too and Black Lives Matter. You know, they will have activist groups in it. it the resistance didn't go global. And now there is a feel that you know, people are resisting everything, which which is not completely true. We just see it more. Uh, but it's it's actually making companies um, take less risk and and do less work because what they do instead is is make a very safe product or service. They find a great spokesperson that will look like you know the right color, gender. Um, you know, the whitewashing is, is real. Um, and they think it's enough. The thing is, it's not, um, because again, you might launch it successfully, but 
things have a lifespan of their own. And if you haven't designed your product to, to last, to actually have purpose and last, and, and you don't have a methodology of how to deal when things go sour, because they will, um, you might be in a bit of a problem in a year from now. It's it's really tricky times. I uh, I really empathize with anyone launching anything at the moment. But so, um, I mean, you're covering something really important, obviously related to to the topic, and you know, our company startup funding event, and the goal is obviously for impact startups to launch, and for that, you're gonna make mistakes like you covered. So, if Facebook who, let's be honest, has pretty diverse teams on purpose because they can screw up and yet they go and they screw up because you can't tell me that Facebook is full of white people alone. They're trying to be super diverse and yet they still go and screw up and they have so many resources. How does a startup do it then? Like, what do they have to do? Or at least what are some of the steps they can do to kind of maximize not having those mistakes so first of all it's it's a matter of origin for me so facebook might have hired more diverse people but it was initially founded by you know a group of university white wealthy guys and they started it as a as a rating app um so there's diversity in terms of representation there's diversity in really in understanding you know what this means outside your your class your system your group of of developers um i think with facebook the the for example the problem is in their origin because the way they develop the company and and their revenue stream are all diverted into you know, viral content primarily and, and data collection for advertisement, right? It's, let's, let's admit it, you know, they don't generate content. They created a very handy platform where it's user-generated content that promotes their um, economy of, of profit, which is data and eyeballs, right? So it's built like that. And, and so... If it's targeted for that, um, it's hard to fix things because everything has to be monetized, right? Everything has to be um, profitable. And it looks like, a, you know, of course, it's normal. Uh, there are some companies that are still profitable, but it's it's just one of their aspirations, right? So I think it's it's where where it started, how how you built your your business around what but but didn't facebook didn't facebook start for free and it was all about connecting everybody and becoming kind of this one platform that connects the world and then they started monetizing it well didn't google say don't be evil and then they bought boston dynamic you, you, I mean, I, you everybody to... brings that up and we had that conversation, but like they didn't remove it. They just added some stuff. They actually it. removed it first from the alphabet and then they put it back on. But again, we have to separate between, you know, again, may... between I want to say the marketing slogans of companies are saying like, we're here to make communication and their actual actions and, and, and monetary system so again you know of course facebook is is connecting people of course of course it does but is it really still the purpose or is it a byproduct or a tool in order to get something else it's a really big question wikipedia for example was founded um to to expand uh knowledge and it's still a non-profit you know and it managed to do that so there are a lot of models, you know, this is not to negate it saying like every company needs to be nonprofit to be the purest form. But of course, when you start monetizing systems, you are eventually as a company yourself enslaved to them. So be also very careful how you build your, your monetization and, and, and growth metrics, uh, because you will be bound for that in the end. And if you go public more so, because now we have 
you know, shareholders that you have to adhere. And this is the promise you gave. And now you have to to do it. And there's a lot of ways. There are companies like Ben and Jerry's, like, uh, you know, Patagonia that, again, are profitable and still balance it very, very well with with values and and that are beyond just commercial. Everybody now are doing recycling and and politically active, but they were doing it when nobody else did, right? So again, it's... And how how do they do it? Can you dive deeper into those stories uh, as examples? Sure. So Ben & Jerry's, for example, um, they turned into non-dairy ice cream, which was a suicide for them, you know? A suicide. They started producing and promoting non-dairy ice cream not because they anticipated so many people will become vegan or, you know, or it will be selling more, but because they truly believed that that the dairy industry is problematic. And they're saying it as, as, as a dairy company and, and the ethical um, the ethical part of, of consuming animal produce is a part of it. So they started to produce um, non-dairy ice creams that became obviously now um, very popular because people are swayed more that way. Um, they have been incorporating political um, activism um, messaging directly into their ice cream commercial. So um, during the presidency of, of President Trump um, and before that, they were creating flavors for to support and donate to gay rights, to to black rights, to to unity, to unison. So they created this positive messaging that was integrated into their product, uh, that was integrated into their marketing, that was a genuine part of, of everything they were doing, right? And Patagonia, you know, it's a clothing company and, and it does something really, really simple. I mean, besides, you know, working on, on its carbon footprint, it creates really high quality products and it guarantees repair for life. So it takes accountability to the product it puts out in the world. You know, there's a lot of discussion now um, in in the tech community because laws towards, you know, uh, the right to repair are, are finally emerging. Um, and we're so used to buy the newest model of, of a product because it's better and, and our own one breaks just when the new one comes out. And, and we accept this as the reality, right? Like, this is just the way it is, you know? It didn't used to be like that. When you used to buy a product, you know, it was very expensive. It was a dedicated decision, and you expected it to work and last for a long time, be it an electrical appliance or a car. Our expectations have been lowered in, in the last 30 years, and now they're they're coming back again. But this company, Patagonia, didn't need to be told, you know, to to create product that lasts. This is just their philosophy and and they take pride and accountability and they build an audience uh, of users and and believers and advocates like myself uh, because, you know, this, what I consider, I want to say an entry level commitment to actually do something that is worth doing uh, is not such commonplace anymore so so I guess what you're saying is and I that's kind of how we started um, the event as well it was to find uh, companies that from the beginning and the offsets have impact in mind and monetization would kind of fuel that mission so so what you're trying to say is that the way the companies should go especially from now on in the future is more of these companies that have mission as kind of their birth uh, in my if the mission is like the at the birth of the startup that that will become kind of the new um, those would become the new Googles and the new Facebooks that, that's what you're trying to well, say well this or? is how Google and Facebook and Apple started I really believe that when they started Right when Apple started, they really wanted to to create these cutting edge products. You know, they really wanted to change the world. Steve Jobs wanted to change the world. You know, it starts with world changing. The problem is that most startup today they 
they don't look so much into like the early, early stage, like really the garage period, the aspiration, uh, because it's not sexy, right? It's not profitable. And and Apple wasn't profitable until, you know, the late 90s, really. Um, so I think we're too caught up with, with the short term, like the unicorn, you know, how could I make something that will explode and make me very wealthy and and expand immediately. And I understand that because this is the pressure and this is kind of like the, the economies, the current economies anyways, you know, this is the expectation, go viral or go home. Um, but I don't believe it's it's sustainable. You Yes, you might make money, but your product um, will not necessarily last, I want to say. And your service will not necessarily last. So the question is, why are you in there in the, in the game anyways? Are you truly trying to make something or um, do you want to make money? Because these are two two separate things. And, and I'm fine with either way. If you want to make money, at least you know where you're at. If you want to you know, make impact, you know where you're at. But just balance your messaging and expectation to that. If there's something I find disturbing is companies that are just in it for the money, but spreading you know the right messaging the hoo-ha um it just i find it yeah i find it deceitful as as a consumer as as a business person um and i think it's becoming more and more um called out and evident early on like people are not just accepting marketing messages they really look into action and expect you to to deliver. I guess I believe in kind of the same future in the sense that, you know, we're going because of this whole culture, whether you call it woke or cancel or whatever, like these fake messages are being brought out uh, and called out. But at the same time, I would also kind of the question that I have when that pops up is, don't you believe that companies can change, especially when the CEO changes? For uh, like the example that I have in my mind is, um, well, Uber, but it's not the best example. But when the CEO or Microsoft, Microsoft is a great example. Uh, Microsoft was, at least in my eyes, and we had someone from Microsoft on the podcast, and I said it there. But it, it was kind of going down, and then I think Satya Nadell came. He was he's the new CEO. Uh, and it just completely changed how Microsoft is doing now. And it's a completely different company with a completely different DNA almost. Um, don't So my question is, don't you believe companies can change? Don't you believe that, you know, a marketing campaign can lead to changing the DNA of the company as well? Like Dove is a good example where they had those the bottle fiasco where they had like all these bottles in the shapes of women. But then the thought process the thought process of like what the campaign meant the marketing campaign went into the dna of the company and so yeah what's your opinion on that so absolutely yes and these are two fantastic examples um you can definitely change i've done a lot of exercises of change management it is possible it is rare but possible um because change requires sacrifices of um, not just financial sacrifices, because you need to invest in change, you know, beyond like changing the logo, you need to change the processes, you need to change the the financial, you know, goals, at least short term, because you need to invest in change, right? Uh, we can't just decide we want to lose 10 kilos without putting some effort and work into doing it. You You can't just mind yourself, you know, into into submission you can't just change the company's motto and like oh look we have a new rebranding so now we're it no it, it does take work um and it takes work um of course a new ceo is one great um is one great change that can happen it's it's probably normally the most effective change that can happen uh, but that CEO also needs to to be able to to trickle down that vision, um, and and I was I like to take I think I can't remember where I read it this this metaphor of the elephant rider, and and 
So if the elephant is going one way, you can change the elephant rider to move it to the right, but the elephant still has to move. So the elephant in, in the room is is people in the company that are used to work like that. And, you know, cultural, internal cultural change is probably the hardest one to make because people will come to these meetings and say, hell yeah, and in, in their everyday practice, um, still will still steer to the devil they know. Um, so yes, leadership changes one cultural internal changes two, and then putting it on the ground, actionable change, like actually changing things, not just messaging is, is actually three, the third and the last most companies do it the other way around. They first say there's something different and then they realize, Ooh, our CEO though is, has been sexually harassing women forever. Maybe we should, we can't talk without changing him. So, so doing this change in the right way and with long-term perception, not just as, as reaction, not just as reaction is very, very important because you will, you know, in the beginning, you'll still have the, the diseases of, of the past and you'll have to withstand it. Um, so change is not easy. And, and, you have to commit to do it long term. I worked in a company once where we had seven CEOs. No, it was like four CEOs. I have seven direct manager change in three years. It was chaos because everyone came and they wanted to to put their own print. And they were right. Like their visions were really interesting, but there wasn't time to implement the new one because the medium, the intermediate one was still being done. And it's chaos. So some of the changes also patience of understanding that some processes also need to end to start new ones. So it's it's complicated, but it's definitely worthwhile doing. Microsoft is a fantastic example. I've been a Mac person my entire, you know, creative life. Um, partially because you know there was this image of Microsoft as this like standard Excel company. Um, in terms of, of the products they made, the software they made, um, but also their ethics and, and approach. Um, and they've changed completely. My opinion on them has changed completely. They're invested in design. They're invested in impact. Um, you know, I know some, some people in Microsoft, it's a great company. Like the culture is, is great. Um, and that's really important because, you know, had I gone to work for, for a big tech company, there are companies I would never go and work for. They might have wonderful products, but attracting also the right people um, is also part part of building companies. Like your ethics and values really matter, you know, not just to old people like me, but more and more to young people because, you know, they realize that, you know, work is great, but a career is not necessarily the only thing that defines you. And they want to be attached, you know, as resources and, and human resource, like your employees are so important, you know, are so important. Um, if they're proud to work for you, if they're in it, not just for the money, you get more and you give more. Um, so it's also, you know, a thought like, what do I stand for? It's not just, you know, because it's important to, to me as a founder, because I believe in it or important to the consumer. It's also important to the people that are on the team. And if it's just money, you know, if they're just in it for the money or fame, well, the moment you might not have money or fame, which happens, uh, you're in big trouble when you do have a cause or you, you do have values, you have something that bonds you even through better through rougher times. So I think it is important. Um, and sometimes it happens, you stumble upon change, right? Sometimes companies, you know, they do a real big mistake, but if they know how to fix it, if they react to it and don't ignore it, they, they can do really well. You know, Robin Hood, for example, the online, I don't know if you know the story of of um uh of the you know very you know gen z investment app and and what happened there they, they didn't react well to an incident where one of the users misinterpreted their design feature it was just bad design right so he thought he lost all his money and and you know killed himself 
And I'm not saying, you know, uh, Robin Hood, you know, they are, you know, directly, they encouraged him to do that. But again, you know, the challenge when you make something like that, it puts somebody's money at stake, at stakes. You have to think also about, about undesirable consequences. You have to put it in. You know, you have to, it's, it's your duty. <laughs> Again, it's your duty as a human and it's your duty as, as a business. And it's your, you know, it, it, it's, it was ignored for so long and now it's a must have. So there is a bit of a process on, of doing that. But let's say they haven't thought it through and, and it, this unfortunate thing happened. Their reaction to that was abysmal. You know, it's also how you react. Do you correct yourself once it happens? Do you react to that, you know, as, as a business or as, and, and that's also very, very important. So accountability is definitely one of the most important thing that has been happening in the last few years in businesses. Uh, accountability before you launch, while you launch and after you launch something. Um, and I think it's, it's a better business practice as well. One of the questions that I had as you're telling the story is, have you, Obviously, you're thinking about these, you know, bad futures also, which is something that a lot of startups tend to skip. I mean, when I was building my company, I did not think about this at all either. So I can imagine you're in such a positive honeymoon phase. You're not even thinking about these things. But yet, obviously, the repercussions can be very big if you are growing uh, hard. Um, I guess a more practical question that I had is, uh, which is something you mentioned. The last step is something you mentioned, I think it was actionable change, where the actual people are now changing in their day-to-day -day actions. One of the things I've um, had, as I sometimes also, when we innovate within the company, it's, I would say, pretty aggressive innovation in the sense that, you know, it could be today we're doing this, but tomorrow it's completely different. So different software or different computers or just different office. So it could be like a huge, big change, and, and I don't want to wait too much. So we have a short transitional period, but the people that want to change tomorrow, they can. So I guess my question there is, how do you deal with some, with some people that, you know, they're so set in their ways, uh, they find it hard to change fast, uh, not because they don't like the company, clearly they work there, so they like it, but, but just that's how they are. Um, how do you have that conversation? How do you maybe motivate them or help them transition towards kind of this more efficient or better future or more aligned with values future? Well, th this is a tricky one because people that are less or I want to say more change evasive are hard to change because they're change evasive, right? Um, so, and, and they're not necessarily wrong either. And this is something that people have to understand. Even entrepreneurs um, have to, first of all, find the value um, of, of these people and, and utilize even their resistance to the process. So, for example, um, I was working with, with a big company that, that wanted to create um, a new product line and there was a group of, of in that case, it was um, sales uh, people that were really, you know, grunting in the background, you know, like, it's not needed. Like, they were really concerned about it um, because, again, they weren't necessarily wrong because a, a previous attempt failed and it just created chaos and distrust from their, their clients. And they didn't want to go through it again. And they felt it's happening again. Um, but they had to comply. Like they, they, they didn't want to resist it. There was like the physical resistance, which is like, no, this is, which actually you should encourage because at least you get a dialogue. And then there's the lethal silent resistance where they will show up, uh, but not participate. So in that case, um, actually I've noticed that it was happening in the background, the murmuring. And, you know, a lot of CEOs like, oh, don't worry, like, we'll change it and they will follow you, build it. And it doesn't always work like that. And they actually can become like a very separative, like you have like the innovators of the company and then you have like the, 
you know, and starting two camps. So I actually brought them into the mix and I told them, um, and it wasn't to trick them because I, I realized this is coming from true experience. It's not just resistance because they don't like it. They're resisting it because they experienced it negatively. Um, so maybe there's something to learn. So we made them into the red team, basically. We made them, like we gave them the official duty of of opposing this. And we would do like the pitching sessions, you know, when when people had to pitch the, the new product and the new line, they would sit there and write notes. And then we would do post-mortem with them. And they would say like, this is never going to work. Like, first of all, they could outlet their concerns, but they also had to construct it into actual debatable things that were part of the process, not opposing it from the outside. And actually some, some of the things, um, they were partially persuaded, which is also a great thing because... You know, they said, like, we still don't think it will work, but we see your point is is much more important past than, oh, it's never going to work. That's the end of the conversation. So we actually made them part of the process and, and we used them as input um, and as a control group. And they gave a ton of valuable information and, and the product was launched and, and it was, you know, quite successful, you know. So instead of swaying and, and always trying to change people, you know, maybe sometimes you have to change a process to adapt to to their energy or rhythm and and knowledge and, and try to figure out where it's coming and how you can make it, you know, instead of dragging the machine backward, uh, try to propel it to, to drive it forward, even if it's slower pace. When you're um, advising in these type of futures, um, how many futures can you predict? I feel like when you look back at, for instance, the Pepsi commercial that went so wrong, um, how, you know, else could they have averted that disaster uh, to the point where obviously like the in that commercial, um, one of the Jenners was like in that commercial. And then uh, it was this whole Black Lives Matter fiasco where they downplayed the protest. So, you know, that passes so many people. And I, I cannot imagine that it was all white people that, you know, that were kind of passing it through. It's Pepsi. There should be also like Latino, black people. Everybody's like at Pepsi. So, so you know, how could they have averted, like how many futures can you predict? At one point, is it really just you're going to screw up? And, and if so, how do you jump in? I, I want to to also like you know I, I I don't believe in bad futures I just believe in 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 futures we we desire and and un, unpredictable futures and undesirable futures um, with with the Pepsi commercial it's it's actually quite interesting um, I I I think they were genuinely. You know, and and this is the sad thing. I think they were genuinely trying to to leverage on, you know, you know, we have this this great public figure, um, and it was Kendall, right? It was Kendall Jenner, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we have this cause. We have a platform. Let's show a message of harmony. I don't think it was mal malintentioned. Um, of course, you know, a lot of people think it was cynical and abusing it, but I, I think it's not, you know, we shouldn't discourage people, you know, and companies to, to portray a message of love and unity. Um, of course, it, it was completely tone deaf. Um, it was completely tone deaf um, because they, they, you know, maybe because they were well-intentioned. But I don't think it's it, it's a matter of like how many colored people are in the room. This is not about um, you know about about that because you have a lot of cultures that you know might have diverse staff, but their thinking, their top down thinking, is very you know capitalist and very white. I want to say and very one dimensional. And then the employees just comply with that. Diversity is not just you know how many you know, multi-gendered and how many, it has to be that as well. I'm not debunking it. I'm not in the merit camp of like, oh, let's just look at merit. 
Um, there needs to be representation in terms of representation that you can see, but there needs to be re representation in terms of thought, you know, and that goes back to our last question. What do you do if like you have a company that is innovative and then somebody is resistant? I'm like, don't, don't, don't leave them out of the process. Bring them in, bring a variety of thought, ask people to challenge you, you know, that's the best thing, you know, don't compliance is, is, good in startups up to a point because you need to move forward but it, it can be also very counterproductive if everybody agrees with you you know your chances of, of making mistakes are bigger because nobody you know even I make mistakes and I'm a futurist I shouldn't be I make mistakes because I make choices that are not just based on my logic or common sense actually most you know successful companies don't work on common sense because you know, if you look at it clear cut, like it doesn't make sense, but it works. Um, so I think in that room, there was missing like one person. It would say like, are we sure? Are we sure about that? You know, um, and again, it was it was done quickly. When you do things quickly, it was done reactively. When you do things reactively, you know, I'm not saying you have to replan everything, but you have to realize when you do things reactively, uh, you can also get it. You can get very right and very wrong at the same time. Uh, when you spend more time in, in understanding the context of what you're doing, you're probably, again, not guaranteed. It doesn't mean that if you plan for everything, you will succeed. Um, but at least you understand risk factors better than, than just simply reacting. So, so kind of what you're saying is, especially if you're a startup and you don't have a big budget for this, or you're just a small company and you're trying your first commercial, be aware when you're doing reactive commercials. And also, uh, when you're doing something like that, maybe get an outside control group where the DNA of your company isn't there, because it doesn't matter what type of people you have in your company, kind of the DNA is still the same. So you have to kind of get outside of your company with the control group. That's kind of what you're saying. Totally. Um, you have to go outside and, and outside doesn't just mean your friends and family that you already told them and they're enthusiastic about it. You know, bring in the haters, you know, just so you'll know, you know, not the haters, like people that don't understand your companies. I, I like to do, you know, I do a lot of workshops on technology, you know, it's, it's useless to just put technologists in the room because they already speak the same language. So they have, you know, so I, I make sure I, I create a mixed group, you know, and it could be people that have nothing to do with it. And, and this is the control group because this really represents the broad spectrum of, of understanding, right? Um, of course, it depends on what you do, but when you do something that is meant to be happening publicly you know have have a control some some sort of control group um you can make it as as you know i i have a series of like you know i call it the pressure cooker you know of, of subverting questions and you know sometimes there's no time to to do a control group but at least you can prep for it at least you know i i help my clients like look at it from from the outside because when you're you're so close to, to an image. It's like, how do you value art? You can look at it from a distance. You know, some art you can only see from a distance. Some art you have to be close. And some art you have to be really close to appreciate. The problem is when you're so close, right? When you're so close, it's so hard to see the whole picture. So find a way to step out. Be it control groups, be it some sort of a control process before things come out. Um... And, and check, always check if it's with your values, really, if it's with your, you know, is, is, is it really, what are you trying to achieve and what can you, are you really gaining from it? Um, because I think, you know, we all agree they would have been much better off if they hadn't had this commercial. Their, their image of, of supporting this would have been much better off. I mean, they've had like, you know, African-American presenters you know, for years, like they have been representing, you know, this population, they could have been so much smarter and so much more effective and, and genuine in, in the message they gave um, and the actions they already made instead of trying to do something new and brashy. So sometimes, you know, it's also looking inwards and saying like, are we doing this? Can we say it? In Pepsi's case, they could have, but they didn't. 
in other companies, you know, you know, a company that would have made the perfect commercial, but inside would act completely differently, also would have been a disaster. So it's, it's just like seeing, seeing inside and out being balanced in your messaging and actions. You mentioned you do uh, workshops on technology. What does that mean? What do you do during these workshops? Um, so these are, we have various workshops. Um, we have workshops on, on dystopia and utopia, like tech, like the black and the white, and kind of like trying to, to this is more about uh, tech literacy um, for people that are not in tech, but also to help um, tech companies understand concerns and challenges um, they have um, from the everyday user, not even necessarily their user, to understand their positioning and, and their product positioning. So we actually work, you know, we work from positive scenarios, like ideal scenarios and dark scenarios and try to build, you know, the in-between, like consider the in-between. Um, we have workshops on... on um, you know, I wouldn't say repositioning technologies. Um, so it's very, even for people that think they know it. So we have workshops where I'm actually doing one uh, next month about 3D thinking. And this is for, for a company that wants to, to start working with AR and VR and virtual spaces. And there's a difference between understanding how the technology works and understanding what the technology is, what it does for people. So we're going from the very basic of understanding, like, what is three-dimensional digital? You know, how do people think about it? What, you know, how do you build it? And actually, the first day is completely physical. We use Legos and, you know, we don't just go to the computer and show them, like, oh, you can spin it around. And, but we let them understand the, the challenges of, of 3D experiences through the challenges of, of 3D objects, you know, hiding things. Like you have to think about that, you know, where does it sit in space? What, how people interact. So um, we just like to do these um, very creative workshops, especially if it's a technology, like help us reimagine AI. So we will approach it, not just by doing a lecture of like, oh, this is AI, this is how algorithm works, but trying to link the, the concept of AI, the thinking and the culture of it through kind of like a tangible workshop that will make them think about it in an innovative way. Uh, one of the questions that popped up that I, I really wanted to ask is um, now with what everything's happening in the joblessness market, a lot of people are going from traditional markets to the tech sector for jobs. So when you're giving these workshops uh, of technology for people who are not so technologically literate, what are you explaining to them to make it, them understand? Because tech is so big. I mean, I'm in one side of tech. Uh, I mean, we have some startups that have won our event that are, you know, completely different things of tech, like green tech, which, you know, we don't actually develop electric energy or anything. So it's completely different. Um, so so what is it? They, what are the first things you're explaining to them or, yeah. Well, as, as you said, like tech is, is more than just coding. And I think for a lot of people outside tech, they really believe that in order to be in tech, they need to know how to code. Like they need to have studied computer science. They need, you know, this is what tech is about. It's such an opaque industry um, in, in many ways because there's so much high level and, you know, they hear their buzzwords and it's interesting but they're really scared of it. So, so first of all, like I open, <laughs> I open the gate and 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 say exactly that. Tech is so many things. You can do so many things if you want to be in the tech industry, and if you want to influence it, even not working from it, it's yours to grab. You know, it's 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 not like this guarded wall. You know, I like to take down that guarded wall. Um, that's number one. And I talk to them about like their experience and their use of tech they all use tech i'm like okay so you're a technologist you know some sometimes it's the wording um and then i go you know for for people that in order to avoid the lingo gap you know we do go and say you know it, it you know explain what is ai like explain the things we're going to talk about because you again you want them in the conversation you don't want to talk over their head and they heard about ai 
they think it's this, but it's actually something else. Um, it's good for them, but it's also really good for the people in the room because even in the tech industry, you ask <laughs> 20 computer scientists, what is AI? And you'll get 20 different answers because AI is also very many things and it's applied in many ways. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really actually very amusing to have, to have the people. We actually ask everyone in the room to tell us what they think it is. And it's really, really funny because it's very easy to show also the, the people that even within the industry, you know, it has different definitions. So to create a common language and to create um, a sense of accessibility is, is the most important thing to start anything, even if everyone are in the same level. So, so for those people, again, looking for jobs, what type of jobs within the tech sector would you be advising them if they didn't have a computer science background or coding experience? Well, I think it's, it's case by case. I think the two, two important things is, is what is their passion? Like, why do they want to go into tech? You know, what is it that interests them and help them guide, you know, guide them into like the right areas or the emerging areas that are relevant to them? Sometimes it's also very good to come in into like a new tech, you know, um, industry. Um, you know, AR blew up quite um, lately, I want to say. Um, it existed way before, but it, it got applied, you know, really, really after um, Pokemon Go came out. And I, I and I told people, I said, this is great times because there are so many people that don't know what it is and how to use it. There's more people not knowing what it is and what how to use it than people that know. Um, so this is your time to come in and, and play with it, for example. It's also about opportunity where not enough knowledge is, is the common... <laughs> is the common red thread, great, great way to go into tech, number one. Uh, but also knowing their, their actual experience, you know, what is, what are transferable skills um, that they, they can do. And, you know, I worked with, with actually, you know, I, I mentored like quite a few individuals that were, um, and I especially like to, to help women, um, I like to help anybody, but but women are still, in my mind, underrepresented in tech, you know, as as a power, you know, group, um, and and it's it's amazing how when it clicks, you know, when it clicks, and they're like, oh yeah, I can I can do that, and I'm like, yeah, you can, you know. Um, I think the more the more people that I don't, I don't know how to phrase it in a way that doesn't, that sounds weird, but I'll, I'll do it anyways. Um, the more diverse people that we have in tech, like people that didn't go to traditional tech education, um, the better it will be for the tech industry. Because if we're, we're really creating, you know, products and platforms that are supposed to be used by everyone and having diverse perspectives in the, the industry is, is priceless. It's priceless. Again, you can make, I never blame technology. I was, I would say technology is, is perfect. It does, it always does exactly what it was designed to do. The question is, how was it designed and who designed it? These are the biggest questions. And, and the second question is, who's going to use it? So the more diversity, real diversity we have in tech, uh, the more we, we, we are less likely to, to make to have this knowledge, massive knowledge gap that still exists between how we design things and how people actually going to use it and abuse it, you know, most of the time, which is, you know, just the way it is. I like that. We are uh, kind of nearing the end. And I, before we, we get there, I, I wanted to ask you, what are some things that, you know, you definitely want to have shared with the audience? Um, what are the things I definitely want to have shared with the audience? So I know that, you know, the audience is, is mostly um, entrepreneurs that are creating things for business. But I want to say, don't forget about art. <laughs> don't forget to experiment the experimentation and play that comes with art with pure creative um, uh, production, even, you know, does not matter what product you make, 
um, when you lose that playfulness, when you, you lose the magic as well. So try, try to figure out how to put that back into play. This, it will be good for your product. It will be good for your soul. Um, honestly, because, you know, we need to enjoy what we're doing. I hope you're all doing it, you know, with, with some joy, not all the time, but some joy. So find, find a joy and find a passion again and put it back into the processes. And, you know, at least you'll enjoy it while you're doing it. But I think these things echo, you know, positive culture and passionate culture do echo in, in the outcome. So try to make it. And it's more than a ping pong table. It's it's really inherited, you know, in, in how you approach people and things in, in your company. I like that. Um, with that being said, I kind of want to roll out the red carpet for you. Is there anything that you'd like to share, promote? Where can people find you? Um, no, they can find me on futurememoryinc.com. Um, things I'm promoting. I hate self-promotion, so I'll try not to. But, but it's the red I, carpet, I so it's fine. <laughs> the red carpet is here. So actually, yeah, I just uh, I started making, talking about joy and art, I actually started making... Um, advocacy animations um this is my new 2021 2022 project and my first animation nipped which talks about a single disembodied nipple trying to find its best self uh is actually out and got into a couple of film festivals and this is actually my way of of kind of like not separating my commercial work, but kind of being able to to have self-expression through technology, through animation, through 3D, and have it live next to my, I want to say, commercial experience. So I had to separate them, but I'm doing it at the same time, so I love it. Um, so there's more art coming, there's more animations coming. I'm going to be also busy with making a lot of content uh, that hope, hopefully pokes people where it should in a very positive and happy way so i hope you can do it as a living i'm definitely trying to myself um and just keep doing good tech the only thing i had uh, as a last question was uh people can find all of that on your website um uh, most of it on on my website um you can find it on my website you can read my book augmenting alice the future of identity, real experience, and reality. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I connect to anyone. Just tell me why you're connecting to me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, I talk. I give talks all the time. So if you just go on my socials, you'll you'll find me talking and talking uh, because I think it's important to to talk and create dialogues about tech. Perfect. And with that being said, thank you so much then for yeah being on and sharing your thoughts about the future. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.